was a little sad uh, about this uh, because I've been so looking forward to coming uh, to France's Tavern to give this talk uh, in person. Uh, I'm a native New Yorker and uh, uh, France's Tavern spurred an interest in the revolution in me at, at a very early age. Uh, so it would have been like a, a homecoming of sorts. Uh, but alas, uh, it was not to be. Uh, but the, uh, the reason I'm no longer despondent is because seeing uh, all of the, uh, uh, you guys show up and from all over the, the country and, and also Canada, it's, it's really quite spectacular. So thank you uh, very much. And, and, and um, I, I hope you glean something uh, from this and it's worth your time. Uh, as a last little bit of um, by way of introduction before we get into the, the meat of this uh, topic, uh, my book, uh, I just found out today, is now 40% uh, off from Pen, uh, Pen Press, so it's penpress.org. Uh, I have a promo code that I put at the end uh, of my slides here. So you can go on Pen Press, and if you like what you see, uh, you can buy this book for almost half, half off with free shipping, so cheaper than Amazon. Uh, okay, well, with that out of the way, uh, what the heck is this book about, right? Why, why am I uh, here? Uh, in short, uh, it's a study of how Americans treated their prisoners during the Revolutionary War. Uh, British prisoners, Hessians, uh, as well as American loyalists. It's a sort of simple question. Right? How did the revolutionaries treat their prisoners? And as I started this project over a decade ago now, uh, I began with a simple premise. Uh, and that premise is that prisoners are uh, problematic. Right? They, they pose problems to those who capture them. Uh, it's really a perennial problem in the history of warfare. What do you do when your opponent uh, stops fighting? Right? What do you do when they surrender and beg for their lives? These are people who are trying to kill you, not moments uh, before. Uh, so surrendering enemy combatants present a whole host of problems, right? With the simple question at first of, do you take prisoners, right? Why don't you just kill this person? Why would you even accept uh, their surrender? Are these uh, enemy prisoners uh, uh, entitled to their lives? Um, that's a question different societies have come to different answers upon. If you do accept uh, someone's surrender, what then, right? So now you've captured this person, what now? This is gonna present an even, uh, even more challenges, right? Who's gonna feed this person? Who's gonna clothe them? shelter them, et cetera, where are they gonna be held? Who's gonna guard them? How long do you keep them, right? Do you release them? Uh, it's a logistical uh, nightmare and continues to be to this very day. Uh, and these questions, which are uh, uh, clearly pressing under normal circumstances uh, between two great powers, great belligerent powers engaged in warfare, become even more uh, pressing when one side or both sides uh, refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy uh, of their opponents. So if you refuse to acknowledge that your opponent uh, is an equal, right? if you see them as uh, criminals, or uh, if you see them as inferior and therefore not entitled to the same protections that you would offer uh, an equal uh, power. And, and we saw this most recently, um, and it continues uh, to, to earn headlines from time to time with the quote, global war on terror, right? Oh, that, excuse me, that was my book. Um, uh, global war on terror, right? So who are these guys? What is Al-Qaeda? Is it a terrorist organization? Are these terrorists or are they freedom fighters? Are they patriots or are criminals? 
Um, if they're criminals, can you put them on trial? Uh, if they're prisoners of war, should they be released, exchanged? What, what do you do uh, with these uh, people? And it, it posed a real uh, existential problem for the United States. Right? So we call them detainees because we can't make up our mind. Right? We don't want to try them as criminals. But we don't want to release them uh, either. What about a, a, a group that uh, doesn't belong to a nation state, maybe like Al-Qaeda, right? who was fighting uh, for independence, an independence movement? Right? Are these traitors? to their government, or are they uh, patriots uh, trying to win their independence? Uh, what do you do with those uh, prisoners? And that's really where my book uh, comes in. Uh, in short, I ask, uh, how did these guys deal with the problem, right? What did the founders do uh, with their prisoners? And in fact, uh, over the eight years of war in North America, uh, American forces captured over 17,000 British, Hessian, and armed loyalists um, in the course of that uh, conflict. So what are you going to do with 17,000 uh, people, right? And many that number at times far exceeded the number of troops in the Continental Army, uh, for instance. What are you going to do with them? So that was my mission. I had to sort of figure this out. Uh, and in order to, to puzzle this problem and, 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 and try and figure this out, uh, I had to go back in time a little bit, and I had to go across the Atlantic Ocean. I had to leave North America, and I had to go back to Europe uh, in roughly the middle decades of the 18th century, uh, a period that uh, scholars call the Age uh, of Enlightenment. And I had to figure out what did war look like there. And so this painting here is, is, is illustrative of uh, what warfare looked like in the 18th century. Uh, it's in fact a 19th century painting, but it captures uh, the gaudy costumes of the opposing forces, uh, the uh, relative limited uh, number of casualties, um, how close they are, the, the proximity of linear, uh, linear warfare. But most importantly for me, uh, it captures uh, this, the culture of war in Europe. Uh, in fact, the, the French officer in the foreground here, if you can see him, is actually asking the English officer opposing him if the English would like the honor of firing first. Right? Think about that. Right? Would you offer your opponents the, uh, the opportunity to shoot first? Uh, well, that doesn't seem to make any sense. Right? So warfare in the 18th century is clearly very different uh, than warfare as we know it uh, today. And in fact, scholars call this the age of limited warfare. Warfare is limited and constrained. Um, Europeans certainly believe that war is necessary, and in fact, they're at war for most of the 18th century, but they do so with very limited means, very limited goals, right? Redraw a map slightly here, uh, put a different prince on a throne over there, uh, etc. So the, the crowned heads of Europe had developed a monopoly uh, on uh, warfare. Uh, war would be waged by these regular armies, standing armies, um, you know, almost professional soldiers that would fight according to these uh, rules. And in this sort of limited uh, version of warfare, very different than the wars of the 17th century that were incredibly gruesome and bloody uh, and uncontrolled, unrestrained, uh, in this idealized 18th century European vision of warfare, prisoners uh, would be well-treated, right? They would be treated humanely. They really use this word huma uh, humanity, according to the dictates of humanity. Um, the key here is that you don't want your 
expensively trained soldiers in enemy custody for long, right? You've trained them, you've equipped them, you want them back in your army. You want to get these guys back as quickly as possible. So the goal of capturing prisoners became not enslaving them or torturing them or killing them, but instead uh, to return them in exchange for your own soldiers in enemy uh, custody. That's, that's the, the sort of key there. So at the beginning of any war, uh, the belligerent powers, right, right at the beginning, would sign what's known as a cartel. And a cartel is roughly a, um, is roughly a treaty signed between two powers that uh, specifies how prisoners will be treated. And most importantly, how and when they will be exchanged. So the cartel signed between France and Britain on the eve of the, uh, uh, the um, uh, Seven Years' War, or as we call it in America, the French and Indian War, stipulated that you could only hold prisoners for two weeks. They had to be exchanged within uh, two uh, weeks. Okay, well, that's interesting. How, how are you going to enforce that, right? This is an era before uh, the United Nations, before international law, before large courts. Um, how are you going to make sure that both sides uphold uh, their end of the bargain? And the first way, the most important way, uh, is a shared notion, a sort of pan-European notion uh, of the culture of honor among gentlemen. Gentlemen officers who gave their word of honor were meant to uphold it. And if they didn't uphold their word of honor, they would face discredit, disgrace, potentially even a duel. Uh, it was a real life and death stuff, this honor. Uh, just ask Alexander Hamilton. Um, so this culture of honor of upholding these rules among officers uh, was really key to this uh, system. Uh, this painting, I think, is, is just wonderful. You can go see it at the Princeton um, Art Museum. Uh, it shows a British officer uh, with his Spanish captive um, after the siege of Gibraltar during the latter uh, stages of the, uh, the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and this British officer is engaging a sort of um, gentlemanly conviviality with his Spanish captor. They're most, almost certainly both speaking French, um, and they're part of this sort of culture of gentlemen officers that know the rules of how war uh, should be played. The Spanish officer has given his parole. He's offered his parole uh, from the French meaning word. He's given his word of honor that he won't escape or try to fight until he's exchanged. And consequently, he's earned a table at the British, uh, at the British officer's, uh, or a seat at the British officer's dining table. These two men in the 17th century would probably have tried to hack each other apart. A Protestant and a Catholic in the wars of religion would not have uh, engaged in this type of activity. Most of us had a painting made of it to commemorate the scene. So warfare clearly is very, very uh, different. Uh, but yet, there are still times where this system doesn't quite work. It's an idealized system. Uh, it doesn't quite work. And in that uh, particular place, uh, European intellectuals, uh, men like Amr de Vettel, uh, who was a Swiss jurist, um, basically codified what to do. And they called this the law of nations. That civilized nations, by that they mean European nations, uh, will and we'll follow these rules. If you don't follow the rules, there are repercussions. And the repercussions are known as retaliation, the law of retaliation. So if this British officer were to uh, injure his Spanish captor, this, uh, his captive, the Spanish could then were entitled to uh, retaliate on a British officer proportionally. And proportionality is really key there, right? They're gonna, uh, it's a tit for tat retaliation. 
And more often than not, and in fact, most of the time, you didn't actually have to retaliate on anybody in European warfare in the 18th century. You just had to threaten it. You just had to say, you know, we invoke the law of retaliation. And usually that was enough to shame your opponent into playing uh, by the rules. So some combination of these codified law of nations, as well as this culture of honor among officers served to limit the destructiveness of warfare on the eve of the American uh, Revolution. But surely you ask, uh, what about war in America? We all know that America is different, right? Well, it was. Warfare in America was, in fact, uh, very uh, different. Um, and that is because largely the presence of a different type of combatants, uh, the indigenous population of North America, Native Americans, Native American cultures had their own ways of fighting, their own ways of war. Um, and that um, uh, was oftentimes very much at odds with European ideas about what constituted legitimate or illegitimate uh, violence. Europeans had very uh, different um, ideas about that. And so consequently, when these two different military cultures, Europeans and their colonial um, settlers, uh, go to conflict or are in conflict with Native Americans, uh, violence escalates. So not speaking the same language about what is acceptable uh, in uh, warfare. Nonetheless, in the period between roughly 1675 uh, and 1775, that century, you know, even colonial Americans were doing everything in their power to wage war like the Europeans. They didn't want to be seen as provincial or backwoods people, uh, rough and tumble. They wanted to be seen as Britons, as fellow British people who shared the same codes of conduct and behavior. And I think this uh, painting of Sir William Johnson uh, really captures that. Um, this is done in the aftermath of his uh, victory at the Battle of Lake George. Uh, William Johnson is not in the center here. He's not a British author. I mean, he's not from Britain. Uh, he's a colonial American of Irish uh, uh, ancestry. Uh, and he's commanding predominantly American provincial forces. Uh, but he's won this great victory, but he wants to show himself as a man of humanity, right? He's restraining uh, the Mohawk warrior, his ally, from scalping and killing the poor French uh, wounded officer, the Baron Diascao, right? He's sending a message that he's, uh, he's a good European officer. He's playing by those uh, rules. And for the most part, uh, in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, uh, these rules uh, work. They play out the way they're supposed to uh, play out. Uh, the examples that we think of when they, they fail, uh, most predominantly uh, made famous by the last the Mohicans, uh, the failure of the French uh, general, the Marquis de Montcalm, to protect his prisoners, his paroled prisoners from his allies uh, after the Battle of Fort William Henry, that was a cause to let. That created an international scandal. That was a huge deal. Uh, so uh, even, um, even when they're in the breach, the these examples serve to reinforce the fact that warfare, even in America, followed these European norms. So it's, it's really no surprise then when uh, in the spring of 1775, when colonial Americans realized that the only way they're gonna be able to prosecute their right by force, their disagreement with parliament, the only way they're gonna be able to uh, get parliament's attention is through force of arms, uh, when they realize they're going to actually have to fight British uh, soldiers, they think they know exactly how this war is going to be fought. They think that the British are going to play by these rules and it will look like a European uh, war. 
unfortunately for colonial Americans, uh, it would not be. It would not be in large part because the British did not see Americans as legitimate adversaries. Right? They were not French or Prussian. Uh, they were not regular forces of a, of a, of a nation state. Uh, they in fact were traitors. They were rebels in arms against their king. And the punishment for treason in Britain uh, was uh, death by decapitation. Right? Um, uh, and that, was, that colored their vision of how this war uh, would be uh, fought. And in fact, the British army of the 18th century had a long history of suppressing uh, rebellions uh, quite successfully and quite violently. Uh, and the key to this was a stick and carrot approach, not a carrot and stick. Right? The British army would go into an area, um, execute rebels, the, destroy some of the, the civilian homes, burn crops, and then offer to pardon uh, the survivors. That was the sort of uh, way the British army went about it. And that's going to color the way that they engage in North America. Uh, they maintain that you can't negotiate with traitors, right? You can't, you can't negotiate with these people. Uh, they have to be brought back to the side of law and order uh, through violence and royal pardon. That's how they're going to do it. So they refuse to exchange prisoners. From the very beginning, they say, we're not going to negotiate with you. We're not going to exchange prisoners. We're definitely not signing a cartel because that would legitimize you, right? That would make you look like a legitimate uh, military, uh, legitimate power, and you're not. You're criminals. Um, so, okay, you, you're, not gonna, you're not going to um, exchange them. You're not going to sign a cartel. Well, then surely they, they started executing them, right? No, right? They're not going to do that either. Uh, for one, they captured too many too quickly. Uh, uh, and for two, the British High Command is constrained, right? It's, it's the stick and the carrot. Uh, they are fighting in many ways for the hearts and minds of the population. And they use that phrase, hearts and minds of the population. Uh, and they are striving as best as they can to win the Americans back. So if you just killed uh, 6,000 American soldiers, that's not gonna, it's not gonna do it, right? It's not gonna solve uh, the problem. So consequently, these American soldiers and sailors are going to exist in a kind of limbo, a liminal space between prisoner on the one hand and criminal on the other. They're, they're very similar to the Al-Qaeda detainees, right? They're, they're neither criminals nor prisoners of war. What do you do with them? Over the course of the eight years of war, the British will capture somewhere between 20 and 30,000 American uh, prisoners, which doesn't sound like that many, uh, but considering the population uh, of the colonies, the, 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 the white population, free population of the colonies was like 2 million. Uh, 30,000 people is not insignificant. Uh, it's about the size of the population of Philadelphia, which was the largest uh, city in North America at the time. So what are you going to do with them? Well, you can't let them go, uh, but you also can't uh, kill them. So they put them on ships. Uh, you guys have probably all heard of this, that the HMS Jersey is the most notorious of a number of British uh, warships that were converted into floating prisons. Uh, and the British had already done this in the past. These prisons had existed uh, during the Seven Years' War to house French prisoners, et cetera. It's not new. Uh, the difference is you were only meant to be on these ships for like two weeks, and then you would be exchanged. Uh, whereas now, many of these prisoners are going to sit on these prison ships for the rest of the war if they survive that long. And in fact, most of them don't. 
you can imagine in these times of COVID how disease spreads so rapidly indoors, right? So imagine you're locked below deck on one of these prison ships uh, that's meant to house something like 800 people and there may be 1,200 of you cramped down below. Uh, disease is gonna spread rapidly. Malnutrition will set in. Uh, historians estimate somewhere between 12 and 18,000 uh, people uh, or Americans perish uh, in British custody. So that's more than 50% of the number they had captured. And that, think about that for a minute, 50%, that number is outstandingly high. It is really unprecedented in 18th century uh, warfare. Um, wow. Uh, how are the Americans going to respond? Right? From the beginning, the American leaders of the revolutionary mo movement are almost, I'm not going to say excited, but there's, there's a little glee in their, in, in their response because now they've got it. They've got the evidence that the British are barbarians, that the British are cruel, that they're violating the laws of nations. And in fact, Americans are the truly civilized ones. So they're going to spread stories of the, the prison ships, the horrors endured by American captives in all the newspapers, up and down, and all uh, around. And that's going to incite, um, that's going to incite ordinary Americans, many of whom probably didn't want anything to do with this war. We have to remember that, that a significant percentage of the population, uh, you know, almost half probably, uh, were what we call disaffected. Uh, they were not, they didn't have affection for the British or the Americans. They just wanted to stay out of it, uh, just live their life. Well, now these people who were sort of on the fence are going to say, oh my gosh, if they can do that to those guys, what's keeping them from doing it to me? And they're going to be uh, furious about that and demand retaliation. There's a huge popular outcry. As ordinary Americans write the Continental Congress, they write towards Washington, uh, but most importantly, uh, they write their local governments, their committees of safety, uh, they write their assemblies uh, saying, you've got to do something. You have to avenge uh, these poor uh, prisoners. Um, meanwhile, Congress, uh, for their part, and General Washington are adamant that we do the opposite, right? Uh, no vengeance. We're going to contain this war. We're going uh, to be legitimate. We're going to look like uh, we're going to play by the rules. In fact, they get a copy of the tell and read and annotate it. Say, okay, what do we do now? Okay, we do this. Because um, they want to be seen as a legitimate nation state after independence. They want to be taken seriously by the crowns of Europe, France, for instance. Uh, they want allies. So they're going to play by uh, the rules. Uh, one Continental Army officer uh, wrote, uh, he said, General Washington intends to show the British that Americans are humane as well as brave. That's sort of the order of the day. And Washington gets this opportunity fairly early in the war. Um, Christmas 1776, he captures a brigade of Hessian uh, troops uh, at Trenton, 900 or so. Um, you know, he could have put these men on prison ships and, um, and done the same thing the British were doing. But no, he orders his officers and soldiers to treat them with humanity. Uh, he sends them to the back country of Pennsylvania where the, the Hessians are actually able to um, uh, rent out their labor to farmers. So they'll go live with a farmer uh, and get paid wages to work instead of being uh, cooped up in a jail cell or on a prison ship. Um, this actually has, is a, a really good idea because a lot of these Hessians end up deserting. Uh, and many of them will actually join the Continental Army. So Washington's plan sort of works. Um, 
But nonetheless, news continues to come into all of these communities up and down uh, the 13 new states about these British atrocities. Something has to be done. Uh, as one angry citizen writes, he says, the time has come to revenge the innocent blood of your murdered children. All right, we've had enough of this. You've got to do something. Uh, and because uh, authority in this new republic uh, came from the people, right? This is a, a republic founded upon the principle of popular sovereignty. Uh, the individual governments, especially the state governments, have to listen. Right? They have to listen to their angry constituents. And they have to do something. And so they engage in what I call in my book the politics of vengeance. Uh, they're going to retaliate uh, on those around them as a way of placating uh, their constituents, as a way of showing the British uh, who's uh, boss. Much to the horror of both Congress early in the war and General Washington uh, throughout the conflict. Uh, these states are going to retaliate first and foremost on, on people close at hand, right? Not just uh, British soldiers, but in fact, American loyalists, who after the 4th of July, 1776, are no longer good Americans. They're in fact traitors, right? If you support your king after independence, you're a traitor. If you take up arms to support your king, you're a rebel, a rebel and a traitor to be punished. Uh, and all 13 states will pass severe laws persecuting uh, loyalists. In fact, loyalism, active loyalism, becomes a capital crime in all 13 uh, states. So if you were an active loyalist and you get captured, even if you're in uniform, right, you uh, will be turned over to the state government, put on trial, and depending on the state and depending on the time, very likely hanged. Uh, if not, you'll certainly be imprisoned, have your property confiscated, uh, et cetera. Uh, five of the 13 ships, uh, excuse me, states actually um, create floating prisons, their own prison ships to mimic the British. And they call them names like retaliation and revenge. Uh, they put first loyalists and then later British and Hessian uh, prisoners on these prison ships as well. Uh, Connecticut actually converts a lead mine, 70 foot underground lead mine into a prison and they lower their prisoners in there uh, where very many of them uh, perish. Uh, but that's the sort of legal uh, apparatus uh, uh, of uh, retaliation. Uh, there's also a whole other world of extra legal uh, violence. And this is where ordinary citizens take matters in their own hands, where they'll go bang on a door, find a known loyalist, uh, and string him up, for instance. Uh, one of these ordinary Americans uh, from Virginia, a man by the name of Charles Lynch, uh, was so, uh, he was so, um, prolific in his punishment of loyalism uh, that they called the act of punishing loyal, loyalists Lynch's law, right? They'd be punished according to Lynch's law. Uh, or if you're going to hang a loyalist, it simply uh, became known as lynching. Uh, it's a name uh, that continues uh, uh, with us today, unfortunately. Uh, so how are loyalists going to respond? They're not going to be just passive victims and, and, and take this uh, type of abuse. Whenever they can, they're going to retaliate uh, in turn, right? They're going to go and do the same to uh, Whig or Patriot uh, neighbors, right? They're going to use uh, weapons. They're going to rise up in insurrections uh, whenever the British can support them. And so this is going to create a spiral of viol escalating violence that's going to occur wherever the British can project power uh, and support uh, the loyalists. What about British prisoners, right? We still have these Americans sitting on these prison ships uh, the states are punishing loyalists, 
but there needs to be a grand act. We need to convince the British uh, that they're wrongheaded on this and they need to change their nasty British ways. Uh, and Congress and uh, the Continental Congress will get their opportunity. October of 1777, when General Horatio Gates captures General John Burgoyne at the Battle of Saratoga, uh, famously uh, painted here by John uh, Trumbull. Uh, huge victory, electrifies the continent. The first time an American army captures a, an entire British field force, over 6,000 men. Uh, big deal, right? Uh, but here's a problem. Gates, here in the center, right here, uh, is in fact uh, an Englishman by birth. He uh, served in the British Army with John Burgoyne from a very early age. They, know, they knew one another. Uh, and he decides to let him go. Uh, he, in fact, instead of the surrender of John Burgoyne, as this title says, it was in fact known as the Convention of Saratoga, which was effectively a treaty uh, ending hostilities in the Northern District. So as long as the British left, they were free to go. They couldn't come back to America, but they could go back to England. They would not be prisoners. They would not become prisoners of war. You can imagine how when news of this great victory reaches the towns, how excited people are, and then to hear that, that Gates has let them go, the British are going to return home. No, 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 we are not doing this. Uh, they're going to write their Congress uh, delegates, they're going to write their, their um, own government saying, no, you have to detain him. Right? This, uh, he's a barbarian. He, he incited the Six Nations of the uh, Iroquois Confederacy to attack us on our frontiers. Uh, he's not, he didn't play by the rules, so why should we? And by this point, Congress listens. In January of 1778, uh, Congress will vote to suspend the Convention of Saratoga. They're actually going to disregard the first international treaty agreed to by an American representative. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, so instead of going home to England, these prisoners will then be sent into captivity. Stacking their arms, they'll go first to Boston. They'll be uh, surrounding, the, the, they're confined in the hills surrounding Boston for a year, uh, but eventually, uh, Congress decides to send them to Virginia. Uh, in a winter's march, and imagine the conditions, uh, was terrible. Um, all along the roads as these prisoners enter towns, they're being pelted with stones, they're being um, called names, uh, etc. Once they get to the camp, there's, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's no supplies for them. Remember, Congress does not have the power to tax. Uh, Congress is funding this whole war on debt, borrowing, and begging. Uh, Congress has no money for them. Technically, the British should be paying for their own prisoners. That's how war works. The Americans should pay for their prisoners in British hands, and the British pay for the, their own prisoners in American hands. That's how war worked in Europe. Uh, but the Americans don't have money for the prisoners in New York, and, they, and the British say, if you don't give us our guys back, according to the convention, uh, we're not gonna pay for them. And so the British stop paying. And so these poor men, the men that, that become known as the Convention Army, will be marched from state to state, uh, you know, pawing them off on local towns and governments, uh, people trying to support them, but they will wear out their welcome. Uh, they will be neglected for long stretches of time. They'll only have uh, basically flour and water to eat. Uh, malnutrition will lead to disease. Uh, in Pennsylvania, one British surgeon wrote, he said, the men are falling sick so fast there are not men enough to attend the sick or to bury the dead. The entire army is at the very jaws of death. Uh, the Americans, uh, here's an example of the state of prisoners in the jail in Philadelphia, try to keep good records. They try to do uh, what they uh, can, 
but as it turns out, you cannot stem this tide unless they are released. As long as they're held in these um, uh, camps, disease continues uh, to spread. One British escapee reported that the prisoners in Lancaster die three or four a day. And this will go on for five and a half years. The Convention Army will spend the entire rest of the war in American captivity. Uh, fewer than 20% of them uh, will be liberated at the end of the war and returned uh, to England. Uh, for his part, George Washington is horrified. George Washington is the exemplar of enlightenment warfare. This is, this is not how he wants to play the game. This is not how war should be fought. He's, he's deeply embarrassed, but he only controls the Continental Army and really only the Northern Department of the Continental Army. Individual states have their own forces and their own militias. They're waging their own wars. The prisoners, once they're turned over to the states, he can no longer call them back. He can't issue an order to Pennsylvania and say, you have to turn over these prisoners for exchange. Pennsylvania say, why? Uh, we don't have to do that. We're holding them uh, for revenge, uh, which is exactly what they uh, do. Increasingly, many of even Washington's own officers come to believe that the time had come to fight fire with fire, that the British weren't playing with the rules, so you know, take off the gloves, George. Uh, if we're going to win this thing, we have to uh, get uh, in the dirt uh, with them. Washington is always trying to uh, stay above that, always trying to rein them in, uh, very often uh, unsuccessfully. But he gets his chance. He gets his chance uh, in uh, October of 1781, uh, when the combined Franco-American army uh, captures a British army at Yorktown, right? the siege of Yorktown. Uh, and boy, is, is this everything he's always dreamed about, a major European-style uh, siege. Right? He's got French tro troops there. He wants to look good in front of his French allies, um, and they win. They capture another roughly 6,000 men under Charles Cornwallis. Washington, however, has learned from Gates's mistake, uh, and he will not uh, issue a convention. This is going to be a surrender or a capitulation. Nonetheless, the terms offered Cornwallis are incredibly generous. Uh, Cornwallis is uh, offered, Cornwallis himself is allowed to give his parole and go back to England. His officers are allowed to go to New York, uh, British-occupied New York. Um, only the enlisted men and a handful of staff officers will be held uh, in American captivity. Washington also guarantees them that they'll be treated well uh, and given the same food as the Continental uh, Army. You can imagine how news of this goes over back in the towns uh, where their, their brothers and sisters are, are, are languishing in British captivity. Um, uh, they're furious, right? This is not how war uh, is being fought. The British wouldn't do that for us. Why would we do that uh, for them? They're angry at these generous terms, especially because Cornwallis himself had waged such a destructive war in the South. It was a really brutal civil war in the South. Uh, and so people want revenge. Um, and Congress, for its part, cannot afford to feed these prisoners any better than they can the Convention Army. Uh, so they will move them um, into the interior to Virginia, Maryland, eventually Pennsylvania, to the same barracks that the Convention Army were held in. Um, here is a, a drawing done by one of the prisoners who survived uh, camp security, um, showing his, uh, his imprisonment within this pen, he calls it. Um, and he writes here, Lord Cornwallis's army was shut up here like a toad in a hole and ass full of venom. These British soldiers are furious at their conditions. They're not being fed, uh, they're starving, and disease, of course, it begins to take uh, its toll. 
1781, yellow fever breaks out in Philadelphia. It, it's brought to the interior of these camps, York, Reading, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and begins decimating uh, the British uh, prisoners from Yorktown. Um, through surviving, we have pretty good records for the Yorktown prisoners, uh, and the mortality rate there was over 30%. Uh, so not quite as high as British-occupied New York prison ships, but still in, incredibly high uh, by 18th uh, century uh, standards. In fact, it's, it's even slightly higher than that endured by Union Army prisoners during the Civil War at the notorious Confederate prison camp Andersonville. And so we don't have any pictures, we don't have any photographs of what starvation and disease does to the uh, human body during the American Revolution, but this is what it looks like in the Civil War. Uh, it's not a pretty uh, sight. So you can imagine uh, similar uh, circumstances developing in these prison camps of Pennsylvania. Uh, Washington, for himself, for his part, again, is deeply embarrassed. He writes the British commander. Um, the British commander at this point, by 1782, is willing to negotiate. The British say, okay, Parliament says we can negotiate with you. We can, we can create a limited cartel for exchange. And Washington says, no, Congress won't let me do it. We're holding these guys uh, until you recognize the independence of the United States. Um, until, uh, until that happens, we have to hold these prisoners. So prisoners on both sides suffer, both Americans and Britons, uh, for the remainder of the war, until the Treaty of Paris is ratified by Congress uh, in 1783. Only then are the prisoners uh, finally uh, released. Uh, here is an image done uh, by an American artist of the American prisoners on board the Jersey. You can see the sort of sunken countenances, um, uh, the, the, the hunger and misery uh, that these prisoners uh, suffer uh, in captivity. For their part, the British, uh, their pension applications after the war, the survivors, they read like a laundry list of misery and woe. Uh, just they, they describe their treatment as utterly uh, horrendous in American hands. These are just a few uh, examples here. Uh, three years, much maltreated was one of the causes being as helping so much affected. Many of these prisoners end up dying once they get back to New York or back to Britain. They're just, they were too weakened by disease uh, and starvation to actually uh, make it back uh, to uh, England. Uh, one prisoner who does survive writes um, in his uh, diary, he says, the treatment of prisoners in general during the American war was harsh severe, and in many instances, inhuman. Wow, that's a lot. What do, what do we make of this? What do we make of this uh, doleful story of distress, as one prisoner wrote? Uh, how does this make us uh, rethink the American Revolution? Uh, for one, I think it forces us to confront an uncomfortable reality, and that is that the American Revolution was much more tragic than our heroic and triumphalist national narratives would lead us to believe. Other scholars have emphasized this as well, that the American Revolution was not only a civil war within the British Empire, pitting British Americans against, uh, against metropolitan Britons, but it was also an American civil war that tore families apart, tore communities apart. It was bloody, contradictory, and divisive. And too often, I think, we forget that side of the story. We, we have a sort of polished, uh, vision uh, of it. But perhaps more importantly, uh, the experience of these prisoners, the, their, their captivity experiences, I think it demonstrates that America's commitment to the restraint of wartime violence, right, that initial resolve that 
we're going to be humane as well as brave, we're going to play by these rules, that that commitment was fragile. It was complicated and then eroded by the experience of the war itself. So in short, I think, uh, and you guys can help me with this, I think we have to stop talking about a pretty American revolution and the, the war for independence, uh, and we have to start talking about the American Revolutionary War. Because this war was in fact revolutionary. It was unlike anything people had ever seen uh, before. Uh, it was a conflict every bit as revolutionary in its character as subsequent European uh, revolutions. So while the American Revolution did not devolve into the same sort of organized and systemic uh, terror that French, the French Revolution did, and you can read my book uh, to see why, uh, it, it could have, and in many places it did on a smaller uh, scale. The external enemies uh, combined with the internal enemies of the loyalists served to, to create the spiral of violence that got out of hand. By percentage of the population, far more people were displaced and exiled, lost their homes, lost all of their property by the American Revolution than the French Revolution. More people uh, lost uh, their property and had to flee. In locations where the British threat was real, around New York, British occupied New York, but also in the South, um, especially later in the war, uh, the war witnessed ex exceedingly high levels of this revengeful uh, violence. So therefore, I think much like the French Revolution, revolutionary political change in America, going from a monarchy to creating a republic, uh, catalyzed the democratization of warfare. Right? So ordinary people who would not have had a say in how war was conducted under in royal America are now playing an active part. In, and that is tied directly to the escalation of this war's violence. Prisoners on both sides will suffer. So from the vantage point of these prisoners, the American Revolution looks more like a cautionary tale than an inspirational one. In my book, it implores us, we must emulate the aspirations of the revolutionaries, what they said, not what they did, not their actions. We can do better. We must do better. Thank you very much. I look forward to your questions. Uh, I have here the website where you can order the book as well as the discount code uh, for 40%. Thank you so much. I appreciate your patience. That was great. Thank you so much. So now I'm going to turn it over to Mary, who will be um, moderating. So if you have a question, drop it into the chat and make sure it's being sent to everyone so that she can see it. All right. I'm going to go through the questions. I see one from Ambrose that said, how would you compare the treatment of the convention army of the convention army in Charlottesville with the American prisoners held on a prison ship in New Jersey? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, so the conditions on the Jersey, because they were so tight and so confined, um, led to a higher mortality rate. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, nonetheless, the conditions in Charlottesville are evocative of that uh, type uh, of, of confinement, right? These prisoners are stuck. Uh, they're fenced in for the most part, um, and they are deprived of food, uh, deprived of medicine, deprived of fresh clothes, um, and all of this done largely uh, it, to um, assert Congress's jurisdiction over them, and their refusal uh, to uh, negotiate, um, or the Crown's refusal to negotiate with them. 
so in that way, the, the reason they're being held is in some ways rather similar, but certainly the, the conditions on the prison ship would be worse. Okay. The estimated amount of deaths on the Jersey was relatively high, correct? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, historians disagree. Um, Howard Peckham puts the number at about 7,500. Uh, more recently, uh, Edwin Burroughs has suggested it may be as high as 18,000, uh, which would be an enormous uh, number. Um, That's a very large jump from 1,700. Uh, from 7,500 uh, yeah, 7, 7, to. That's a big, big jump. Indeed. Ken Myers asked, what was the fate of Native Americans on both sides of the Revolutionary War? Oh, it's a, a wonderful question. So both sides uh, at the beginning of this uh, conflict sought to recruit uh, indigenous people. Right? They understood the British Army had experience with Native Americans in the past war. They knew the power uh, of Native American nations um, as, a, as a tool of counter revolution. Um, and so from the very beginning, both sides are trying to do that. The British offer a better deal, quite frankly, because it had been the British that were keeping the Americans out uh, of uh, Native land west of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it was the British Army that was protecting Native Americans uh, in the run-up to the American Revolution. And so they don't pose the same threat. So the British are a natural ally. Uh, plus, the British have more stuff. They've got more weapons and uh, gunpowder and other gifts to give and recruit Native Americans. So constantly, from the very beginning, the revolutionaries are going to associate Native Americans with British barba barbarity. So they're going to say, look at these, look at the British. They're using these barbarians as their allies. That means the British are also savages. Uh, and they're going to use this sort of racialized language to describe both the British and Native Americans. And so consequently, the treatment of uh, indigenous people when captured is, is horrific. Basically, they don't take them, uh, in fact. Right? Native Americans very, very rarely are actually captured. They would just be put to death. Um, in fact, when uh, General Washington sends General Sullivan into Iroquois in 1779, Western New York, uh, he uses the language of extirpation, right? Exterminate them, all right? We want them all gone. Uh, he, de he definitely doesn't want you bringing back Mohawk warriors to sit in a prison camp in, near Philadelphia. That's definitely not his goal. Uh, so the treatment of Native Americans uh, in many ways parallels uh, the way colonials treated Native Americans in prior conflicts. Uh, dating all the way back uh, to the 17th century. You had mentioned earlier that it was the responsibility of the opposite army to take care of anybody who was in their, as a prisoner in their ownership. What was the average cost per officer, per soldier? Did it get higher as you got somebody in a higher rank? Oh, that's a really, really good question. Really good question. Uh, yes. So, uh, <laughs> very much. So. If you were an officer in the 18th century, it was expected that you were a gentleman. Uh, that means that you did not work with your hands. So you lived off of your land, basically rents paid to you. You were independent, in that way, independent uh, of uh, pecuniary issues. So it was assumed that you had money. Because A, you had to put up money to actually buy your commission. To join the British Army, you had to cough up money uh, to do it. Uh, so the assumption is that officers can pay for themselves. So from the beginning of the war, the idea was that, that British officers would be paroled. So they would they'd be allowed to live in a um, city, say they could you know, live in, in uh, let's say Boston, uh, after the British evacuate. You were paroled to Boston, you would have the limits of the town, you could rent a tavern um, until you were exchanged. 
the problem is these exchanges were relatively infrequent. Uh, and so these officers were in captivity for longer and longer and longer, and they start racking up debts. Because everything's done on credit in the 18th century. Everybody's paying with cash. Uh, and so these officers are actually becoming very aggrieved because they can't get exchanged and they don't, they're out of money and they are so terribly in debt, they can't get out of it. That's a real uh, issue. Uh, enlisted prisoners were issued a sort of standard, they had a sort of standard amount of, uh, and I don't know offhand, but it was, it was measured in food, not money. You know, a certain number of meat per day, a certain amount of flour, a certain amount of peas uh, was the standard fare, uh, tea, um, small beer, as they called it. Uh, and so that was calculated for each soldier was given this amount of food. And usually what happened is the British would send a merchant to the American camp where the prisoners were to actually buy the supplies and supply the prisoners. That, of course, breaks down with the Convention Army after January of 1778, where the British stopped doing that and stopped supplying them uh, um, at all. Uh, on the American side, they, they, you know, again, Congress cannot tax. So they cannot, uh, so how are they going to raise money to pay for these guys? Originally, again, on credit, um, borrowing, um, but they stop. They basically run out of money at one point, and the commissary general of prisoners, the American commissary, uh, Elias Budno, has to spend 2,000 pounds of his own money, hard money, like goes into New York City to supply these prisoners on, on the prison ships with new shirts and some food. Um, so it's, it, it varies over time. Um, and it, it's the, this, the war drags on. Because we've got to remember, this is an eight-year-long war. Yeah. Right? Think about the Civil War is four years. Uh, this is an eight-year-long war. Um, it's a really long time. And so it gets worse and worse and worse as the war goes on. So the short answer was very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, effectively, the, at one point, Congress charges uh, the British Crown for one year of subsisting the Convention Army. They charge them 200,000 pounds. Wow. Which would be an out, I mean, I can't even, I, I don't know what that would convert to today, but probably billions the, of dollars. <laughs> yeah, I'd say close to a bill. Yeah. yeah. My math is not um, working. Yeah. That's got to be. Oh, <laughs> it does not pay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see a couple of questions about uh, black prisoners. Mm. So Stephen had asked, how were the black prisoners treated compared to the white prisoners on both sides? And especially because the British had put out Dunsmore's proclamation, uh, basically calling upon enslaved people to fight for their freedom. So what was typically the process with them? Were they treated just as badly as Native Americans? How were they respected? Did they get the same kind of parole? That is a great question. Uh, and one I, I deal with uh, significantly in my book. Um, at the beginning of the war, the British realize that they don't have a, that much support in America. Right? They're not that many loyalists. They're getting intelligence on the ground. Um, they realize that they're going to need allies if they're going to win. Because Britain has a very small army, actually, much smaller than France or, or, or Prussia, for instance. So they're going to need auxiliaries to uh, beef up the size of their forces if they're going to win this uh, war. Uh, hence the alliance with Native Americans. Uh, and in Virginia, very early on the war, the governor issues, Governor Dunmore issues this proclamation, which says, if you are a slave that belongs to a rebel master and you run away and come to me, and join my army, you will be free. Uh, he raises a regiment uh, of um, runaway slaves, arms them, uh, et cetera. Unfortunately for these free slaves in Virginia, they are defeated in the Battle of Great Bridge in December of 1775. Uh, and many of them are captured. And here's a problem, right? 
what do you do? You've captured British soldiers, you've captured a loyal white white loyalists, and now you've captured uh, African American uh, loyalists as well. Um, initially, the legislature of Virginia, uh, well, actually, initially, initially, the the Virginia soldiers, the militia, want to kill them. Uh, they are so outraged, like slaves in arms. It's so outrageous to them that they, they have to be restrained from killing these prisoners. Um, then the Virginia legislature steps in and says, okay, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, we can uh, put them on trial. We're not gonna put them on trial and, and hang some of them as an example. Um, and they're, they're probably gonna, they were heading in that direction when they are basically sued uh, by the owners of the slaves, uh, demanding that their property be returned. And so the slaves that are captured in arms, for the most part, are uh, returned to a state of slavery to their masters. If a master cannot be determined, which happens sometimes, uh, they would have an auction in the, the camp, the uh, militia camp, and sell the slave to the highest bidder. And that was actually very common throughout the war. Uh, many runaway slaves actually made it to the Hessian troops in New Jersey and ended up joining the Hessian garrison at Trenton. And, and some of these were captured. And what are you gonna do with them? You can't treat them as prisoners of war. Uh, so they're actually sold right there on the battlefield on the day of the battle. Um, and other times and places, they are sent to um, uh, lead mines. Virginia will have a, a, a lead mine in Western Virginia where they, um, they mine for lead to make bullets. Uh, and they will send the uh, uh, slaves to work uh, there. Uh, so the, the, the short answer is that the the Americans refused to treat people of color in arms as legitimate combatants. They did not treat them the way they would white soldiers. Uh, the British for their part could have done a lot better job of sticking up uh, for their uh, uh, African-American soldiers. Uh, it's really only at the end of the war uh, when Sir Guy Carleton is in command in New York, uh, Parliament is basically like, return the slaves. Like, we're not bringing them back. Um, uh, it's in the treaty, give them, Washington's like, we want our slaves back. And Carlton says no. Uh, and he actually takes um, the surviving um, uh, men and their families uh, uh, to Nova Scotia, to British held Canada. Uh, but yeah. is a, um, uh, it's an exception, not the rule. Yeah, the Book of Negroes, that was uh, what compiled that essentially was written at right. Ponce's Tavern with the dual partnership between both sides. Excellent. That's our little tie to that. I like it, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw one really cool question. Uh, Alex asks, what were the conditions provided to suspected defectors or loyalists in makeshift prisons operated on a local level, such as towns in the Hudson Valley? What was the last part, the town? Uh, what were the conditions provided to suspected defectors or loyalists in makeshift, prisoner, uh, makeshift prisons operated on a local level, such as the ones in Hudson Valley? Uh, okay, good. Um, so the first question is defectors. So what's, if you're a defector, if you're a revolutionary, let's say you're, um, and you desert the Continental Army, and you are later captured in British uniform, right? So people switch back and forth, actually at a surprising rate uh, throughout the revolution. People's loyalties could be very malleable, depending on which army was closest. Um, uh, if you were captured, you would be court-martialed and very often shot. Uh, Washington did reprieve a lot of deserters, but he also believed he was a stern man, George, uh, and he believed he had to show an example to, to stem the tide of desertion. So that's the sort of defector or deserter. Um, loyalists is a different issue, and it's, it's a tricky issue because um, what if you didn't take the oath? 
So all these states have oaths after 4 July 1776, oaths of allegiance. Well, if you didn't take the oath, right? You've only taken an oath to the king. You've never taken an oath. Are you, are you a traitor? And basically, for the, the sake of ease, uh, Congress comes down on the fact that loyalists are the state's problem. Right? Congress, we don't want to deal with loyalists. If we capture loyalists, Washington captures loyalist troops, we're going to turn them over to the states to be tried by the states. Um, and there are several different categories of, of offense. Um, one is misprision of treason, uh, where basically you've said something, uh, you know, you've said God save the king or something, and you know, that's treason, so we can, we can try you for that. And then there's actual treason, like I took a gun and joined the British Army um, and you know, shot at Americans. Clear treason. All right. So and it varied in place to place uh, what punishments would be. Uh, for them. Um, more often than not, Americans are actually a little skittish of hanging people for treason. Uh, there's a new book on, on Philadelphia that's really quite good that shows uh, that says all the treason trials. There were quite a few. Um, and the juries, more times than not, the juries uh, would um, acquit the individual rather than hang them. If the choice was hang loyalists or acquit, they would acquit them. Um, and that's largely because this sort of issue, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a sticky issue, right? Are you a really a traitor if you never swore allegiance to the state, right? If you left, if you were in exile and you get captured, are you really a traitor? What if the British were to capture me, right? Uh, well, I've clearly taken an oath of allegiance to Pennsylvania. Does that make me a traitor? Yeah. Oh, uh, are they going to hang me? Um, so um, despite a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of enthusiasm to hang traitors, especially early after independence. Um, for the most part, uh, juries, t at least in Pennsylvania, seem to have demurred. I thought you were going to say there was going to be a lot more tar and feathering. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I mean, so that, so you have the legal apparatus, and this is an important distinction, right? You have the legal apparatus of the new state, right? So committees of safety and then courts. So the court mm -hmm. system are, 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 re are reinstated. Um, and the legal apparatus is sort of drawn out because as, uh, as a descendant of English people, you have a right to trial by jury. Uh, so you get a jury trial. Well, that's going to be drawn out. It can be messy. Um, you know, juries, after all, an American jury uh, found the Boston Massacre soldiers um, uh, innocent uh, or largely innocent. Um, so juries can be fickle. Um, but there is this whole other realm of extra legal violence, which is much, much, much more common, which is rather than, uh, you know, try this loyalist, if you can, you just go and kidnap him. Uh, and this happens all the time around New York and along Long Island Sound. Uh, groups of militia will go out, grab somebody in the middle of the night and come back. You know, sometimes they hang them, sometimes they try to exchange them for uh, Americans in British custody. Uh, it varies. Um, but that extra legal um, responses, I would say, far more common. Interesting. Uh, Ethan just did the conversion rate for us. So he said 2,000 pounds of ster uh, 2,000 pounds sterling in 1776 equals approximately $420,000 today. Oh, okay. I was, so that's, uh, that's, a, that's still a, a very that's a large less. chunk of change. Yeah, a lot less than I thought. Still, uh, quite a lot. Uh, I don't understand why they didn't pay. So strange. Uh, our last question is a very nice, easy question, I think. Um, we would like to ask you if you can come to Francis Tavern and have dinner with anybody, who would it be? Oh, if I could have dinner with anybody, who would it be? Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, 
I uh, I find uh, Lafayette to be um, uh, utterly uh, charming, and uh, his life is spectacular. He's just an idealist. The man believed in liberty, like in his bones, he believed in human liberty, and he was willing to sacrifice that over and over and over again, oftentimes in a very foolish ways, in very selfish ways, right? I mean, he left his poor 13-year-old wife who was like, pregnant to go, um, yeah, he was, you know, he did a lot of things that were um, questionable, to it. questionable choices, <laughs> uh, but to, 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 to have some time to talk to someone who really espoused the best, I think, of uh, the Enlightenment, the best of uh, the American uh, belief in liberty and popular sovereignty, and who did his best to bring that back to Europe. Again, in 1789, 1830, and again, 1848, uh, the man would not give up. Um, and so he's indefatigable. So that's my choice, Marquis de Lafayette. Yes, I love his farewell tour when he came back here, when Monroe yes. asked him back, and he was just, you know, his face was everywhere. And he, he made that joke of he was sneezing into hand, handkerchiefs that had his face on it. And he was like, this is crazy. <laughs> crazy. But he was greeted by more people what was it then in New York City when he came here, then people met the, the Beatles at Shea Stadium. I like that's it. how big of a deal he was. And I don't think people understand that sometimes. I think you're right. You know, he was a, a celebrity on both sides of the Atlantic. Very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, well, thank you for submitting your questions. Thank you, Cole, for all your great answers. Thank you, Mary, for moderating and keeping track of everything. Uh, so this is the end of our lecture. Thank you all for joining us, for spending your evening with us. Um, remember, a recording will be posted in the next few days on the website. So if you want to re-listen or share it with someone you think will like, it'll be on there. Thank you to those of you who have donated. Your donations are helping us keep the museum going while we can't be in the actual building. Um, helping us keep all of our programming and our mission of sharing the American Revolutionary Era with everyone. Uh, any amount is greatly appreciated, so thank you all for that. Um, right, that's, that's it for us, I guess. So have a wonderful rest of your evening, and hopefully we will see you again. You can check our website or join our mailing list to stay on top of all of our virtual lectures. All right.